G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. We are here thanks to Runners Red Zone, which is the only training app you'll ever need. Jump on runners.com to have a look at that. It is full of running sessions, high intensity, body weight strengths, training for the kids, the youth, and yoga as well. So everything you'll ever need on there. And we do some live stuff as well, which is going off. Today we have Lee Troop, who is one of the great Australian distance runners of all time, a three-time marath- uh, Olympic marathoner and a 209 marathoner. He's now a super coach out in Bola, Colorado. He's from Geelong originally. We caught up over Zoom, and it's a long chat, hence the three-parter. He's got a wealth of knowledge, and he's also one of the more compassionate and empathetic human beings on the earth. Troop is a legend. His audio was magnificent. Mine wasn't as good. You, you, you'll see. It's fine still, but it's not as clear as it normally is, but we'll get the Zoom sorted um, by the next series. So get stuck in to Lee Troop. G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. Um, the guest today is easily one of my favourite athletes of all time in all sports. I've, I've looked up to this fellow since 2000 and um, it's a great honour to have him on as an athlete and now I've really looked up to him as a coach. Um, I welcome on the deep dive, Lee Troop. Hey mate, great to be here. We just, oh mate, thanks so much. We just had a bit of an off the camera chat. Um, it's six o'clock in Boulder, Colorado. This is our first Zoom podcast. This would have been done over Zoom anyway because in fact we're in Melbourne but of course we are in the midst of COVID-19 lockdown. So this man in front of me has been doing a lot of very good homeschooling. He's just cracked oh, down at his first year at 6 o'clock in Boulder, 10 a.m. in Melbourne. I'm about to join you, mate. Cheers. I'm going to third coffee, but I'm going to go off Boulder time. I reckon I'm going to the fridge. But we want to, I wanted to get you on because um, Troopy is one of the great – he's just a, he's a great student of the sport of distance running. He's been running – since a young fellow in primary school with his dad, and yeah, that's the way you started, I know, so we'll get you into that. But um, his methodology, his knowledge, and his general human compassion and empathy is what makes him, I think, one of the best coaches in the world right now. Um, and he's he's um, he's extremely modest, so he won't say that, but I wanted to get it off the, off the cuff. So three-time Olympian, 209, 49 marathoner. Look, he's, he's actually, I think you've gone under 212 six times, mate. Is that correct? Six, seven that's times? correct. Yeah, 212. The 210 mark he broke twice and was just missed out another time. Like he's done it all, and and I'm just tipping the iceberg. We'll get stuck into it, Troopy. Where did it all begin in Geelong, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, your running career? Yeah, just uh, my dad wanted to lose weight. So, um, you know, my dad was a drinker and a smoker, and, you know, the 70s uh, popped around. There was a there was a big boom, um, you know, sort of late 70s, early 80s with Robert DeCostello. Um, you know, the Americans had Frank Shorter that led into Bill Rogers. And, um, yeah, just we were going through a, a bit of a golden period. And so my dad uh, bought all the books, uh, Train Like Deke, Eat Like Deke, Race Like Deke, and bought all the Adidas, uh, or Adidas, sorry, I should sound more Australian and not American, but um, he bought the Adidas shoes, you know, the Adidas Deke trainers and the races. And, you know, as most young kids, you look up to your father. And so I wanted to run. I was uh, I was playing football and playing cricket and I was doing running at, at primary school. Uh, back in the 70s, there was a program called the Life Be In It program. So for every kilometre you ran, you actually got uh, a certificate that you could colour in. So I still have them. You know, I coloured it in and then my mum kept it in a scrapbook. But 
you know, as I got a little older, you know, obviously my father started to get a little bit more serious and that's how I got involved um, at the start of running. But, you know, as we um, developed, I found that running was just a, a lot more akin with what I loved, you know, like football and cricket, basketball, they're all team sports. And um, I used to like training, training hard, but there would just be people on the team that would rely on natural ability. And unfortunately, uh, when you get to close games, uh, that natural ability that required grit, determination and, you know, um, like a, a passion to win wouldn't really uh, come through and I'd get frustrated. So at least with running, I always knew that it was on me and it was on my watch and the training that I put in would be um, would be reflective of my race results. And my father was an army man and so I wasn't allowed to do any fun runs unless I'd actually trained for that race. Um, and that's basically how it started. Well, yeah, you obviously showed some talent early. I love that. Look, you, you are a, you are a great team man. I love the fact that I can imagine you. I can imagine playing footy with you. I can imagine doing those things. But at the end of the day, the um, the ability to extract the most out of yourself and rely on only you. Um, and again, you control the controllables. You, you don't have to worry about another twenty-one bikes not doing the work if you're if you're doing the training. So that is that where the love was was born. Tell us about high school days and, and starting to realise, gee, I've got a bit of talent at this and I reckon I might be able to make the highest level. Um, so year seven, I uh, I won my local you know high school competition and then I got to run in the Geelong All Schools competition and you know I think that's as far as I went in uh, in year seven and then so year eight I'd set the target of you know okay I, I want to win my high school and I want to win the Geelong schools and. Then you went to Victorian country uh, competition and I think that's as far as I got. And, you know, the following year, it's the same process, except I got through Victorian country and then you actually got to state championships. Uh, but then after state championships, you had Australian all schools championships. So I think 1988, I, uh, I made my first Australian all schools uh, cross country championship. Uh, it was at Brisbane uh, where the world expo was on. Uh, 89, I made the, the Sydney championships uh, 1990, I, I took a year out and I just wanted to play football. Um, so I, I played football at East Geelong Football Club. And then uh, in year 12, I came back and I ran, um, uh, I made it all the way to the All Schools and actually won won the All Schools Championship. But um, it was actually combined that year with the Australian Under-20 Championships. And I really had no idea. I just, I love school competition. And so I finished second to a guy called Brett Cartwright and everyone had said that I was going to be making the world cross country championships, uh, the junior championships in Boston in the U S and I had no idea. I was like, Oh, this is going to be awesome. But they didn't send a team except for, uh, for the only under 20 female athlete, which was Susie power. I think athletics Australia had a pro, uh, uh, pretty much this, um, uh, this, uh, blind thing in the uh, selection criteria that if you weren't going to medal, you weren't going. So, uh, they'd never heard of me and they didn't think I was going to medal. So I didn't get to go to the World Junior Cross Country Championships in Boston in 92. But that was just every year I kept setting a standard that I wanted to improve on the following year. So you think in year seven, you know, I was able to win my schools, but not really get through the Geelong schools. And then by the time I got to year 12, I won my schools. I won the Geelong schools. I won the Vic Country Championships. I won the Victorian Championships. And then I won the Australian Schoolboys Championships. So that really set me up for um, a lot of things that happened, you know, just after that, you know, I, I didn't make the world cross country team, but athletics Australia didn't select me, but 
you know, I then got a, um, a scholarship opportunity to go to the US and it just opened a, a number of opportunities for me. Yeah, bloody discretion. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that there, I reckon, for now. The college, so that was high school. So the college, you obviously went to college in the States. Just touch on all that and the coaching. Now, you famously self-coached for the majority of your career. We'll jump on that later. But the, the NCAA system, just touch on that for a couple of minutes, your experiences over there, how you ran and how you found it all. I didn't even run at NCAA. I ran at NJCAA, which is National Junior College Athletic Association. So um, I was going to go to San Antonio University and then you know a couple of personal things happened and then I decided I didn't want to go. And then when I decided I did want to go, I called the school and they're just like, we've given out our scholarships. Uh, the only opportunity for you is to go to a junior college. And I had no idea. I mean, the only thing we had in Australia in the early 90s was Beverly Hills 90210. So I just want to go to the States and just, you know, be on the beach. You know, I'm from Geelong, Bells Beach is just up the road. Um, so I had the uh, junior coach call me at like 3 a.m. one morning and you know, he was like, you know, my mum comes in and says, oh, some guy from America wants to talk to you. And he's like, how old are we? You know, my name is Coach James Morris. I'm from Leveland, Texas. And I, I seriously had no idea. I just was like, yeah, I want to come. You know, what do I need to do? And so... I decided I wanted to go to the States and my parents gave me a, a one-way ticket to, to go. Uh, I flew over there with my surfboard because I honestly thought that I'd be, I'd be um, surfing. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, just, I, I had no idea. And so I arrived uh, way back then. It was like 36 hours. I had to go from um, Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney to Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles to Denver, Denver to Dallas, uh, Dallas to Lubbock and then I got picked up in the early hours in the morning um, I remember getting driven to the school and I couldn't see anything it was pitch black but there was this like really pugnant smell and um, obviously the next morning I woke up and in Texas there's pump jacks that are just pumping oil and you can just smell it for miles and I remember the coach telling me he had this beautiful lake that they trained around and the lake was like 800 meters around and that was as, as good as it got it was extremely flat it was called level land for a reason um, there was a lot of cotton fields, um, which is where we did a lot of our running. And uh, here I am with a surfboard and the closest ocean was like eight hours away. So um, I lasted, I think, three days and I called my mum and uh, I said, look, I'm out. I, I, need to, I need to fly back home. And my parents had given me a one-way ticket and they'd said, you know, when I wanted to come home just to call them. And uh, so when I did call them, my mum said, no, we knew you were going to do this. You're there for a minimum six months and hung up the phone. And so, um, you know, again, I said, my dad's an army man, right? So it was this tough love of like, no, no, you're going to, you're going to find yourself and it's going to be tough, but you'll do a minimum six months before it's time to come home. And I ended up being there for a year and a half. Um, it was, it was extremely tough, you know, like I'm in the panhandle of Texas. They'd never had an Australian before. You know, in our country, you can drink at 18, you can drive at 18. In the US, you know, you can't, you can, drive at 16 but you can't drink to your 21 and I had no friends had no family so I made a lot of poor judgments early on and who I thought were cool people to hang around with and people that I thought would be friends and that I ended up blowing all my money because we just go out and we just drink and party and um, it took a while to sort of find myself and I was very fortunate that I had a great coach um, who you know his name is James Morris and he coached a lot of elite athletes you know Brian Sheriff um, uh, Leah Gard Martin, Philemon Hannick, which you know people in Australia won't know who they were, but they were really big in the US. Brian Sheriff was from South Africa. Philemon Hannick was from Zimbabwe. 
Um, and, you know, Leah Gard-Martin was from Kenya. And so what I found about the National Junior College System and NAI, which is a, another division, a lot of African athletes are there because they're not um, smart enough to get into uh, NAI, uh, sorry, NCAA. And so the toughest competition we faced was a school from NAI called Lovey Christian, and they were better than all NCAA schools. They were better than Arkansas, you know, better than Texas. And so I ended up being there 18 months. I learned a heck of a lot about myself. I certainly got thrown into a baptism of fire, and I can certainly thank my parents for that. But I had a great coach that I made a lot of mistakes. You know, I went there as a 18-year-old kid that, you know, just loved to live life and, and party hard and in that environment and in that, um, you know, particular uh, place in the top panhandle of Texas was really frowned upon that he he had my back. He Every time I messed up, um, there was no judgment. I would serve my penance and I'd be straight back onto the team. And I really do feel that that whole situation that was really only 18 months was the real making of me when I came back to Australia. 18 months is a big chunk of your life at 18, though, and that's that's definitely like how um, much foresight from your parents as well to say, no, no, we, we could see this coming and this is about a life lesson. Um, the coach again, was he – so what was his name, sir? His, his name was James Morris. James Morris. So it sounds like a lot of yourself in him as well. Do you see a lot of yourself in him um, looking back retrospectively? Um, from a coaching point of view, absolutely. Like he was a people person and he really invested in people to bring the best out of people. I mean, if you've got the ability to run, that's one thing. But if you don't have the temperament, then it doesn't really matter. I mean, not that, you know, we're comparing apples and oranges here because NCAA is a much tougher competition. But you know, I was a five-time All-American at National Junior College. I got recruited by all the big schools, you know, from Arkansas to Texas, like, you know, when you're racing Lubby Christian, which was part of NAI, and you're competing against the best athletes in the country at that time, and, you know, you're finishing in, you know, the, the top three, top five, I mean, there was a reason why I got called the White Kenyan. You know, it was just just me versing like all of them. And um, he certainly instilled that belief. Uh, sadly, I was still very green behind the ears. And, you know, I still wanted to be that guy from Geelong, that that party guy. And, you know, race hard, train hard, play hard. And it just really didn't fit the environment there. And, you know, after 18 months, um, I got into trouble again for, for, uh, for a small, more small indiscretion. And uh, I decided at that point I was going to come home because I felt that I was a long shot of making the uh, 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And I figured, you know, this wasn't a good fit for me. Uh, I felt like I'd got out of it what I really needed to. And, I wanted to come home and see if that could be a possibility of uh, becoming an Olympian. Yeah, which which does lead me into the professional career because this is was a twenty year professional career, listeners. Um, we you'd be remiss to think like he's he talks so laid back, the great man, and he's nice and relaxed, and you talk about his partying, but like he's at the very pointy end even at this stage. And in Australia back then, nineteen ninety six, obviously we had Deke and Mourners were still running. Mourners were still going around. When did you come back and you, you decided to go up to Ballarat or did Mourners start mentoring you before Atlanta? And tell fill the listeners in on, on the on the incidents leading up to Atlanta and why you didn't end up going to the Olympics. So um, I came back Christmas 94. Um, I moved straight to Ballarat. I knew that I wanted to be a professional athlete and 
there was no better uh, place than Ballarat. I'd run for the Ballarat Harriers, uh, even though I'm from Geelong. Geelong didn't have a team, cross-country team. So I ran for the Ballarat Harriers. I love the environment in Ballarat. So as soon as I got off the plane, I pretty much said hi to my mum and dad, packed up my car and I moved straight up to Ballarat. Uh, I'd left about 25 messages on Steve Monaghetti's phone. Um, he didn't return any of those calls. So I went around and knocked on his door and um, basically had reintroduced myself. I'd met him as a, as a young kid at 16 and told him that, uh, you know, I wanted to train in Ballarat. I, it was like my dad when he bought all the books, you know, he wanted to train like Deke, live like Deke, eat like Deke, race like Deke. And I think that was probably pretty much what I said. I wanted to eat like Mona and train like Mona and be like Mona. And, you know, Mona, you know, he he was good. You know, he just basically said, look, you know, I have my career that I need to focus on. And, you know, if you want to train with me, that's great. Uh, I have a simple rule and that is I train at eight in the morning. I train at five at night and I'll give you three chances. And if you blow those chances, you know, you're done. So I, uh, yeah, straight up to Ballarat. That was in November. And then Christmas Eve, 94, I uh, was back in Geelong with friends and uh, family. And I went out to, uh, to a number of bars and clubs. And unfortunately, um, leaving a nightclub and on my way to a taxi, I ended up getting assaulted um, and woke up in hospital Christmas morning with a broken jaw, shattered cheekbone and a blood clot on the brain. And, um, you know, till this day, we still don't know who did it and the reasons why it was done. And um, yeah, I woke up in hospital and didn't know why I had all these tubes on me and pulled all the tubes out. And I walked home, uh, got home at about 7am and to the dismay of my parents, you know, because they'd seen I'd been given a bit of a walloping and Christmas Day wasn't that fantastic. Um, I relieved myself early to, to go to bed. And uh, in the early hours of the morning, my dad had heard some moaning and I'd tried to crawl from my bedroom to uh, to their room. And I got rushed to hospital and then was rushed to St. Vincent's Hospital. And I was uh, lucky to just end up getting, you know, that broken jaw fixed up and the cheekbone patched up. And it just took a, a couple of months for the blood clot on my brain to dissipate. But that eradicated 95 uh, but I'd already moved to uh, Ballarat and was living in Ballarat with um, still my closest friends today and uh, once I got the all clear to run um, it was like starting from scratch again uh, you know trying to get fit so 95 really wasn't much of a run uh, any chance of making the Atlanta Olympics were gone um, I like I said I, I was a long shot but if you can qualify to nationals and you can stand on the start line, you're a chance, you know, and so I didn't even get that far. It just took a, a whole year after that to get healthy and to get back into running. And so 96, I was able to dominate things at a state level. Um, I couldn't quite piece things together at a national level, but then in 97, that's when all that started to, to happen for me where, um, I was able to run, you know, 28, Oh seven, I think at Zadapec and win the Australian title and qualify for the Commonwealth Games in uh, 98. Um, I won the um, Australian half marathon champs at Lake Macquarie. Uh, I ran 13.36 for 5K and was able to compete against Paul Betok, who was a silver medalist at the Atlanta Olympics in 96. Um, you know, I, I just had a great year. I think I was unbeaten for, you know, a, a good portion of the year. Um, but what I went through in 95 after that incident and then building up in 96 certainly set me up for the success I had in 97 and purely through 97, that really set me up for, you know, the rest of my career. A few things there, apart from the fact um, that you, you've said a few times about the build and we all talk about patience and 
it doesn't happen overnight. Months, years and years and years of continuity and work, and that that goes for even the very best. Um, having that much time off, it needed at least 12 months of continuity just to get close to where you were, number one. Number two, for such a young bloke in your mid-20s, you've already had so many, um, I guess, life-building moments and, and um, to, to build robustness and, and make you resolute. So the, the Texas trip for eight, like the 18 months, the people don't do that. People don't do that. The everyday athlete will not have experienced these things. And obviously the, the Christmas Eve assault um, that you really took it over 12 months of your life as well. So mentally, you, you're in a pretty, you're pretty tough and resolute as we speak. How was your training around this period as the age in the mid-20s? And we, Monas was mentoring you because we're about to come into 99, which we'll talk about at length. But how was your training going around 98, coming into the KL and those kind of things? It was perfect. I mean, I'd already done the groundwork in 95, 96 and 97, I had a lot of great results and that led into 98 of Commonwealth Games and, you know, winning uh, Zatapec, you know, the national title and, you know, like it just like everything just came together. And then we had um, a lot of Kenyan athletes that were coming out to Australia um, for our summer, their winter, and I got to train with them. Um, you know, just Kim McDonald was the agent of these athletes. So I got to be friends with Luke Kitkoskai and um, Bob Kennedy and it just, it was one of those ones. I mean, again, I said I was green behind the ears. And once I got the all clear to run, like I, I wasn't looking back. I wasn't looking back to, okay, I had this tough situation in Texas and oh my God, I, I nearly died from this, from this you know, incident or, or, you know, altercation. I just wanted to run, you know, and I was very fortunate in 96. Um, I'd spent 95 training with Mona um, and I saw the preparation that he'd put in to make the Olympics. And that only inspired me even more, you know, like here I was to, you know, training with a guy that had gone to his third Olympics, you know, Mono had achieved a lot at a world cross country level at a track level, uh, 2747, you know, I just, I, I just wanted to train. Like I just, like every time I turn up to train, like I just trained hard, you know, and then every time I raced, I raced hard, you know, I was very premature in 95, 96 um, and 97, I sort of got it right, but I didn't know how to race. Like, I do all the hard training and then as soon as I'd stand on the start line, I I don't know, like just little doubts of getting ahead, you would struggle to, you know, have the confidence of how can you be invincible. And I learned a lot through Mona. Like I didn't learn a lot from training with Mona, but I learned how to race. I learned how to be a competitor. I learned how to get the best out of myself, but I, I learned how to bleed. Like when you're on on that start line, like half the race, half the people you're racing against, their race can be gone by just the confidence that you exude. Um, when you get into the race, like certain things can happen, but you know, to throw surges in at different points of the race and particularly when people aren't expecting it, like you, you can break them, you know, like physically we've all trained hard. Like if I had a dollar for every great workout I've heard from every athlete I've, I've trained against, like I'd be a millionaire, you know, but my training was just pretty basic. Like Mona's training was pretty basic. We just did it consistently every week, but I learned how to be a racer. You know, I learned how to be that competitor you know, to be that gladiator when you're out on the racetrack and you give everything that you've got. Like you don't step off that racetrack feeling like that you didn't give your best or you still had something in reserve, like you bled. And that's how I lived the rest of my career. Like whether I was in great shape, whether I went into a race with an injury, whether I was in the best shape of my life, I made sure that every race I did, I bled. And um, that was the that was certainly the the defining moment of taking me from where I had been to then 
where all of a sudden 98, 99 started to roll in. That's, um, yeah, that's fantastic. The grit, determination, and the ability to bleed and balls to the wall, just leave everything out there it was a major strength. But the racing, yeah, I was going to get to that as well because I wanted to ask what you took from, from Honours in that phase because that was a pretty, you, you, he was your mentor for a long period there. Still self coached, Lee? No, the time that I was in Ballarat, I just trained with Mona. It was it was pretty much Chris Wardlaw's training. Like we just, you know, like whatever he did, I yeah. did. Like if it was the Benson Hills on Saturday, I did it. If it was a ten mile tempo around Victoria Park, I did it. If it was Mona Fartlick, which always was on a on a Tuesday, and then Deke's quarters on a Thursday, you just did it. And then Wednesdays were an hour forty five to two hours, and Sunday was always two and a half hours. So. You know, we have those uh, stickers on the back of trucks in Australia that says get, get in, sit down, shut up, hold on. And that's pretty much what I lived to my advice for six years. I just, whatever Mona did, I did. Like we traveled together, we raced together. Um, I certainly had to learn how to treat Mona as a competitor, uh, which I didn't do well in my early years because I just trained with the guy. I'd ask him for his advice and he'd tell me what he thinks I should do, but he already had a plan, right? So Chris Wardlaw had already given him a plan. So he had pretty much double the ammunition. He knew what he was going to do, but then he was telling me what I should do, which he already knew what I was going to do. So I, it, it took me a while to learn how to keep my cards close to my chest. Mm. And I learned a lot of that, that through training. Like Mono could come to training some days. He's like, oh, I'm tired. I'm not feeling great. I'm just going to sit at the back. And I'd be like, oh, great. I've got his number. I'm going to smash him. And then I'd get halfway through the workout and Mono sitting on my shoulder and I'd look over and then he'd throw in one surge and he'd break me and I'd be like, hang on a second. He's told me he wasn't feeling great. Like, what the hell? And it just, that were the things that I learned from Mona was just to be the competitor. And once I learned how to flick that switch, it, it was just amazing how different of an athlete I was when it comes to racing, you know, and, you know, I, I might not have got the best out of myself, but I certainly got all out of myself, you know, like I never left anything out there. And, uh, that certainly is attributed to him. You know, I mean, there were so many races, you know, I mean, obviously you're going to talk about 99, but I remember in 2000, we ran the Australian cross-country championships in Melbourne. We'd been training up at Noosa uh, leading into the Olympics and I ended up getting the flu and I didn't know whether I should fly down for it. And Mona's like, well, it's your only race that you're going to be doing. You know, you may as well fly down. And so I flew down and I felt like crud the whole time. And I was like, I shouldn't be here. This is going to be tough. And we took off and I wasn't feeling great in any way, shape or form. And I was running with a guy called Dean Cavuto from the ACT and Mona. And I was just, I was just going through the motions. I was on, I was off, I was on, I was off. But I got to a point like just before halfway and I was just like, screw this. Like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to throw in the hardest surge that I can. And I'm just going to see if I can break these guys. And I did. I was able to get a lead of like whatever it was, a hundred meters. And the race ended up being that way. I ended up winning by a hundred meters, but it was just learning those little things that when you're in the race and you're hurting the difference between every athlete is mental, you know, and you've got to put yourself outside of that and just drive with everything you've got. I mean, physically I was tired and I was spent because I had the flu and every other athlete was physically doing the best that they could, but the difference was completely mental. And that's where um, my association with Mona uh, is purely um, where it's 10 out of 10. I mean, he taught me what it took to be mentally tough and to mentally be the best that you can be and to make sure that 
you give everything you have. I mean, obviously there's an expenditure because you're emotionally spent. Um, but, you know, when people look at my career, there were just so many races that I was able to really drive more out of myself than I could just because that I knew that, you know, if all things are even physically, it's just going to come down to who's mentally tougher. So that's where uh, Monta, Monta played his, his real part of being the mentor in that. We can pin that to the show notes over and over. Listen to that over and over again because that's golden. Um, fantastic, Trufy. That's great, mate. Look, it is all above the shoulders, especially at your level, um, the very elite level of, of sport in the hardest sport on earth. Um, if you're not willing to hurt and suffer often, you're not going to get very far. We're going to go back to the famous race in 99, mate, because um, you, you've been quoted many times as saying, you haven't got much speed and, and you, you, you play it down. And, look, you, I love the quote as well before we get to the Clarkie race about, look, you, there's no point being able to close in a, in a fast 400 at yeah, the last lap. If you, if you can't be there, we'll, we'll have to go as well. I love those kind of quotes from you because I think a lot of good um, distance runners will be able to sympathise with you've got to be strong, you've got to have the, the speed, endurance, the strength, but, of course, you've got to give yourself a chance to close. Um, the 5,000 national record, 33-year-old record that you break the great Ron Clark, who is just an actual national icon and hero. Take us through that lead-up and then take us through the race itself and just uh, give us a bit of a, I guess, how does it sit now all these years later, 21 years later, in, in your mind, and where does it, where does it rank? So um, obviously I talked about the success I had 97, 98, and that was a cumulative effect of like what I'd done in 95, 96. And there was nothing special about the training. It was just good, hard training, but I got better and I got stronger and I got fitter and I got more confident. So the start of 99, I went to the Tokyo Marathon to run and I knew I was in great shape. Um, I went over there to run the same course that Mona had run 60.06 and the same course that Darren Wilson had run 60.02. And I was confident that I could run between 60 and 60.30. And when I got there, it was a different course. Uh, they changed the course because the year before um, all the men had gone through and then they decided to stop runners coming through so they could let traffic through and that ended up um, impeding Alana Meyer who ended up winning the race. So the Japanese Athletic Association were like, okay, we, we can't have that because it was quite discriminatory that uh, they had stopped the race with the elite women and, of course, all the elite women banked up um, as the race got stopped. So they took it out to a new place called Rainbow Town and it was – basically just out and back. You had to run over these um, uh, these bridges. Um, and so it was. I was sort of discouraged because I was like, okay, I can't compare myself to Mona and Deke, but, you know, it is what it is and I'll race as well as I can. So, you know, we went through the first, um, well, the first 10K in 29-22, which is nothing flash, but there was like a big group of people. And at the time there was, um, uh, there was Moses Tanui. Uh, he was an elite Kenyan athlete. Um, there was Arturo Barrios, who was the great Mexican athlete. And there was a truckload of Japanese. And we got to 14 kilometers and I was just like, all right, I know that I'm good, but now I'm going to pit myself. And I took off and I ran as hard as I could. And I led all the way up until a few hundred meters to go. Um, but, you know, the first 10K was 29.22. I had closed out in 28.34 on the road. I'd run... Uh, 1430, 1430 and then 1410 for my last 5k and I only got out kicked by a Japanese Kenyan and so I came from came back from that with a lot of confidence and I was getting ready to debut uh, my uh, marathon at London 
And so for me, I had a lot of confidence and I decided that as part of my preparation, I was going to run the Sydney 3K and the Melbourne 5K. Um, I always just love to race. I'd always do track races as part of my prep. Like we used to have this A, a grade meet at uh, Olympic Park on Thursday nights and I'd turn up and run two heats of the 1500. Like, and everyone are like, you're an idiot. Like, why are you doing this? And you, know, you run a 1500 and run 346 and then you come back and run 350 and all right, it's nothing flash. But then when you start running 750 for 3K, people start to think, oh God, there's a little bit of method behind my madness. So I decided to run the 3K. I remember the night before I was having a beer. I was actually, I had like, you know, three or four beers and a pizza with a friend of mine. And I flew out that morning of the race to, to Sydney, um, got to the hotel and I was just treating it as training. Um, you know, had a, had a sleep, got up and had a cup of tea and Vegemite toast as I always did as preparation. Went out to the track. Uh, we had Lucas Kipkoskai, who was number, uh, two in the world, Ben Mayo, who was number four in the world. And so I jumped in this 3K just to, maybe run eight minutes. And anyway, uh, I can't tell you what the split was. I'll tell you what the split was after I found out. Um, but I ended up running 741. And I remember I took the lead with 700 meters to go. And I ran like there was no tomorrow. And I led up until about 200 meters to go. And Luke Kipkoski come past me and you know, he ran 741. Um, there's a guy called Brian Wilson from the US who hit me on the line and ran 741. And I ran 741.69, I think. Um, but anyway, Mona's running up the straight and he's like, you broke the Australian record. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, no, you broke, broke the Australian record. And I'm like, what is it? And he's like, oh, it's 741. And I was like, okay, I like Sean Crichton held it, but I had no idea. Anyway, I missed it by 0.1 of a second. Um, and I found out that I've gone through the first 1500 and 349, 350, and then ran the second 1500 and 349, 350. Um, and then I was running the Melbourne meet, which was four days later. So there was all this talk about breaking Clarkie's record. And to be fair, like I, I would never have thought that in a million years. I mean, when you look at, you know, Simon Doyle, you know, you look at, um, Andrew Lloyd, uh, Mel Norwood, um, you know, Pat Carroll, you know, just, there's just a list of, of guys, Paul Patrick, Julian Painter that like they didn't do it. It seemed like this record that was just always going to be there. Um, and I just purely wanted to race hard. I wanted to see if I could turn the tables on um, Luke Kipkoski. And I knew that I had London. So, again, my goal was 13.30. Um, I figured, like, let's just do it off tired legs. And so Graham Hood from Canada was our pacemaker. And he took us through the first uh, five laps at 64, which was 13.20 pace. And, you know, the pace sort of felt okay. It didn't feel great. So then I took off um, to try and sort of uh, bring it down. Um, and yeah, we were like 803, I think. Um, we might actually, I think we're a little bit quicker. We might have been 758 or 59, but I really felt like I could have gone through 3K and 750. Um, and anyway, uh, again, it just came down to a race between me and Luke Kipkoski and Lucas ended up winning. I think he ran 1312 and I ran 1314. And, you know, you, you know, you asked me like what it was like at the time and what it is like now. At the time, I didn't appreciate it. You know, at the time, I was like, I want to be a marathoner. All right, I broke this record by Ron Clark. Okay, great. Ran 13, 14. Fantastic. But it was, wasn't until years later, you know, and particularly when you're nearing the end of your career and then your career's over, that all of a sudden you start looking back on moments in your life that you're just like, shit. You know, and I probably shouldn't say that, but I'm just like, I, 
I should have really valued what I did at the time, but I was so pig-headed. It was always about tomorrow, the next day. Like it wasn't about celebrating in the moment and enjoying the moment. I mean, yeah, I went out that night and we got drunk and I had fr- you know, a lot of fun with my friends, but I went out and had fun for an ego reason. You know, I, I didn't go out because I wanted to actually enjoy what I did. I went out because I didn't understand the magnitude of it. It was like, yeah, I broke a record. Let's party hard. And, you know, I did. And, you know, just, you know, years later, I remember Len Johnson writing an article and he wrote about, you know, pivotal people in time that changed where Australia currently is um, with distance running. And he, he rated me extremely high that no one had broken Clarkie's record. And then since I broke Clarkie's record, we had Mottram and, Birmingham and then obviously look now we've got Patrick Tierney and, and Stuart McSween and just you know reading what he wrote and not understanding that at the time I think is extremely um, uh, poignant on me you know to just be again you know I was a sprinter in a distance guy's body like you know it was just like yeah let's let's party and you know when all of a sudden you're near and then you career and you start reading that I, I really do wish that I had valued it for what it was appreciated it for what it was um and I think it's just now and particularly through my coaching that that moment in time I didn't I didn't celebrate it the way that it should have been celebrated I didn't um I didn't understand the magnitude of it and so my coaching now I'm pretty much preaching to my athletes what I'm saying here you know and that is to enjoy the moment to celebrate the moment but to really embrace it you know and to be around the people that matter the most to you and to look back on it that you know it's something that you deserve because for the rest of your career you might not get this opportunity and if you have more opportunities that's great but if this is as good as it gets and you don't embrace it then you know, look back with regrets and luckily for me I had a long career and I had a lot of other opportunities that came along for me to enjoy but that is certainly one moment in my time that I just wish I understood the magnitude of it. So wise, but yeah, as a 25, 26 year old bloke, and, and like you said, you just you're a lad, you're having fun. But yeah, it's, as a coach and a father, it's um, it's stuff we know now. That, oh, mate, look, so great. That was a real special moment in athletics. Um, Ron Clark was this figure that everyone just like, looked up to, and his feats were were so amazing in the 60s. And to break that and not even be close to your peak is like, well, how good is this fellow going to be? But you always had the marathon, and the marathon was always your A, your A, your pet. Um, coming into Sydney, um, tell us about, we, you were still with Monaghetti, tell us about the lead-up to Sydney Olympics, the home Olympics, and take us through the race because it didn't eventuate the way you would have liked, but certainly for a new follow Yeah, well, I mean, I, I ran London that April and ran 2.11 on debut, and, ran an unbelievably great race. So I felt like the the world was my oyster. You know, I was going to go into into the Olympics, you know, as a, as a favourite to be top 10. Um, I qualified for the World Championships in Seville that year in Spain for the 5K, 10K marathon. I wanted to run the marathon. Um, unfortunately, you know, it was advised that, you know, I should focus on the track and that I was too good on the track to be focused on the marathon. And so I was only permitted to run the 5K, which was disappointing because the 10K that year only was a straight final. Um, the 5K was a heat in the final. And then the marathon, which was a team event, which is what I just wanted to run. And so, uh, unfortunately, I got ran out of the heat of the 5K. Um, I was the uh, first non-qualifier to, to make the final. Um, and so, 
don't know, I just, to be honest, it just, it really upset me, you know, that uh, here I was putting all this time and effort and my, um, my future had been determined by um, selectors and head coaches. And so being that brash guy that I was, I decided, screw it, I was going to train hard and I was going to go into the Sydney Olympics and I was going to prove to them how good I was. Um, at the time, it was figured that uh, I wasn't um, I wasn't the full two bob, and that I needed to speak to a sports, sports psychologist. Um, that lasted one one lesson. Um, I think the sports psychologist is still seeking help for himself. <laughs> um, but anyway, I just I started just training like a lunatic, and I unfortunately developed a stress fracture in my femur um, up at Falls Creek. Uh, leading into, um, we had to run the trials in April of that year. And so I ended up going home and I found out I had a stress fracture in the, uh, in the neck of my femur. So I ended up missing eight weeks as a result. And then I only had about six to eight weeks to get up for the trials. And, um, I was very lucky. Uh, you know, I cross trained. I had a friend called Richard Naruka from England who was uh, trying to make the team for England and he was living with me. So I cross trained with him and, uh, you know, as I said, I, I ran well in the trials and good enough to, to make the team. But basically what happened was, you know, I did a very limited preparation of a short period of time. And then once I made the Olympic team, I just went straight into training and, and trained hard. And, you know, basically to just digress, you know, the Sydney Olympics didn't go well for me. And primarily that was because I didn't take the time to fully recover from the original injury that I had. And then I just started trying to pound you know, so much more training on top of a structure that was fractured. And, you know, I always say that you're only as strong as your foundations. And, you know, if you look at the pyramids, you know, the Egyptian pyramids, they've got unbelievable foundations. And uh, my foundations were fractured and I was trying to, too busy trying to pile onto it. So when I got to the Olympics, you know, I went into there thinking that I'd be in the top 10 and I was fourth at halfway and I was running the, the race of my life and I was caught up in the euphoria of everything being a home Olympics. And, I got to 23 kilometers. So you basically went through the city center and you went down before you had to go up over the Glebe Island bridge. And as I sort of was going down and we just started to head up, I, I felt this like slight grab in my stomach, which I thought was a stitch. And then all of a sudden it was like this pop. Um, anyway, I, I just thought it was a stitch. And so I sort of had to back off a little bit and I sort of got up over the hill. And as we were coming down the other side, Mono went past me and uh, quite a few other people went past me. And that was it for me. I was going backwards and I was not uh, running well at all. And uh, I remember at around about 32 kilometers, you went through this private area and I was already in like, you know, excruciating pain. And, you know, I had a number of, you know, great Australian people jump out in front of me with a, uh, uh, you know, a prawn, you know, <laughs> on their fork and a can of Foster's. And, you know, I, I just was emotional. I started, you know, vomiting blood, you know, when I got out on the freeway at about 36 kilometers and, I don't remember finishing the race and still to this day, I don't. And I've never, ever watched that Olympic race. Uh, what I do know is that you had to finish within two and a half hours. If you didn't finish within two and a half hours, you had to finish on the warm-up track, uh, primarily because they needed to start the closing ceremony for the billions and billions of people that are watching it around the world. And so I knew my motivation was to finish and try and get to the track in two and a half hours. My parents were there. Um, and we also have a rule. Um, you know, when you wear the Australian uniform and that is that uh, if you can't complete the race, you'd take your singlet off and leave it on the side of the road. You didn't deserve to wear it. And so I just didn't want to take that singlet off. And it was my first Olympics and it didn't go the way I had planned, but I knew that I had to finish it. And uh, 
I went into the stadium. As I said, I don't recall uh, the closing stages of the race, but I do remember walking once I finished to get out and there was Bruce McAvaney and, and Deke and they had been doing the commentary and Rod DeHyden and uh, Steve Monaghetti, my fellow teammates, were waiting around and that's the tradition with Australian marathoners is that you always wait for the last person to finish and I just wanted to get out of there and, you know, I remember Bruce saying it was special and, you know, Deke asking what happened and I I tried to get through this, like, media scrum and I saw a door and I went to this door and I pushed the door open and I sort of walked outside but as I got outside, the door closed and I couldn't get back in. <laughs> and I couldn't go back in to get my gear. I couldn't go back into where um, the coaching staff were waiting for me. And like, I'm just crying, right? I just, I was emotional. So I decided I was going to walk back to the village on my own, which was like a, maybe a two kilometer walk. And I got back to the village and then the security wouldn't let me in because I had no accreditation. And I'm crying, I got no bag. And I'm just like, I just want to go to my room. You know, like I've just run the marathon. It's the worst race of my life. Like, who would be trying to get through security wearing like a singlet and shorts and race uniform? So they let me through and I just went to the back of the, um, the back of the Olympic village and I cried my eyes out for, I got no idea how long it was. Um, but yeah, it just, it was a, it was a tough time. It certainly wasn't the way that I had envisaged my, uh, my first Olympics going and particularly a home Olympics, but you know, it, it is what it is. And it was a tough time after that, you know, I'd go out and you'd get that odd, idiot that had had too much of grandpa's cough medicine you know just piping up and asking me how it felt to to let my country down you know and you just you, you couldn't go anywhere i mean australia you're, you're a big fish in a small ocean and it scarred me for uh for a number of years after that just to uh go through what i went through but you know it, it it's made me who i am today but uh at that particular time it certainly wasn't a joyous occasion when it should have been Tune in next week for part two of the Deep Dive with Lee Troop.